the Bible this morning, I want you to come with me to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5 and just reading at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 20. Romans 5.20. Paul said, Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Paul here in Romans 5 is making some contrasts, contrasting the difference between law and grace, between Adam and Jesus, between Adam's disobedience and Christ's obedience, between Adam's offense and Christ's gift, between Adam's trespass and Christ's righteousness, between death reigning in us through Adam's sin and us reigning in Christ through Christ's righteousness. And then in verse 20 that we read there, by further way of contrast, he says, but where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Sin with all its cunning, with all its temptations, with all its devastation and disappointment and fear and dread and ruin and doubt that it brings into lives. Paul is saying that grace is much more than that. Grace can do much more. Grace abounds more than sin can. No matter how much sin abounds, grace abounds much more. And Paul's contrast here is emphatic. It's undisputed. It is without doubt. Grace can overcome every plot and plan of the evil one that he's got in against your life. Now, the two words he uses here to make the contrast are different. Uh, whenever he uses the word abounded, he uses that word twice, but they're two different words to make the contrast. First of all, he says, where sin abounded. And abounded here is Planonazo, planonazo, which means increased, multiplied, grew, expanded. And in fact, the first part of verse 20 shows that very clearly. Moreover, the law entered that the offense or that sin might abound. What does that mean? Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. Well, you see, God gave the law specifically for two reasons. First of all, to show man his sin so that man could be without, would be without excuse that he would know for sure that he had broken God's law. So God gave man a standard, a benchmark, if you will, so that each time he broke God's law, it would be clear. In fact, Paul, in Romans 7, verse 7, he says, What shall we say then? Is law sin? Certainly not. On the contrary, I would not have known sin except through the law, for I would not have known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. And so clearly uh, the law is to show us how sinful we are before a holy God and how we break God's law. You see, this is a problem with man. We, we, we want to break God's law. You know, that's inherent within our sinful nature. We want to break God's law. We don't want God's law governing our lives. We really don't. 
And, and even man's law, we want to break man's law. That's why we have police force, we have uh, in prisons, we have courts, we have all of these things, the judiciary, all because we break law. And it's within us to break law, even in a very, very simple way. For instance, if you see a sign, wet paint, do not touch, what are you tempted to do? You're tempted to touch it, aren't you? Because that's the way we are. That's the sinful nature of man. We want to break laws. We want to break God's law and even man's law. How often have you heard maybe some celebrity and they've lived a, a dissolute life. They've lived a terrible, awful life. And you know, whenever they die, they've been, they're lauded. They say, oh, they were a free spirit. Well, when they say they were a free spirit, basically what that means is they didn't want to obey any laws. Certainly not God's law, and even man's law, they had their own laws they wanted to live by. You know, they were their own God in a sense. They were a free spirit. They wanted to do whatever they wanted to do, however they wanted to do it, whenever they wanted to do it, whoever they wanted to do it with, because they were a free spirit, you see. But that shows us, you see, that we want to break God's law. And then, of course, uh, we know that the law is set in place for that so that we know, and also... Uh, Paul says in Galatians 3.24 that the law is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. So the aim of the law is to show us how undone we are, how we totally have broken God's law and the wages of sin is what is death. But that's to point us to Christ, to show us that Christ is the only answer to us as lawbreakers before a holy God. And so we come to Christ. In fact, the great C.H. Spurgeon said that the law is the, is the black dog that drives the sheep to the shepherd. The black dog that drives the sheep to the shepherd. And so the law is a very important thing for us. Now, there's no doubt that sin is increasing. There's no doubt that Satan is going about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, that he comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. And then Paul says, but where sin increases, where offenses increases, he said, where it abounds, he said, but grace does much more abound. And the word he uses here for much more abounds is hyperparashul. And hyperparashul simply means it's much more. It's exceedingly, it's superabundantly, it's overflowing. So one of the words for abound Paul uses means more. And the other word he uses means much more. One means increasingly, and the other means exceedingly. Uh, one means abundantly, and the other means superabundantly. So no matter what the enemy throws at us in life, there is an abundance of God's grace that we can overcome all of his plots and his plans. Ephesians 3.20, Paul says, He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power of God that works within us. And so there's plenty of grace for us today. Now here's some different translations and paraphrases about Romans 5.20. The Moffat translation puts it this way. Law slipped in to aggravate the trespass. Sin increased, but grace surpassed it far. And then the New Living Translation. God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were, but as people sinned more and more, God's wonderful grace became more abundant. And then the Weymouth Translation. 
No law was brought, now law was brought in later on so that the transgression might increase, but where sin increased, grace has overflowed. The Amplified puts it this way. But then law came in only to expand and increase the trespass, making it more apparent and exciting opposition. But where sin increased and abounded, grace, God's unmerited favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabounded. And so no matter what the enemy of your soul does, no matter what plot or plan he has, know today that God has got an abundance of grace to overcome that in your life. Whatever you're facing today, whatever struggle, whatever battle, uh, whatever situation you find yourself in, whatever the enemy has plotted and planned, you know today that God has got an abundance of grace to be able to overcome all of that for God's glory. The bigger the test, the greater the testimony. The greater the challenge, the greater the champion you'll be when you overcome. The severer the trial, the sweeter the triumph. In 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, it says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you. So not only is God's grace abundant, and not only is it abounding, but it's abounding towards you. Every single day of your life as a believer, the grace of God is abounding towards you. God has got a reservoir of abundance of his grace, and all of that is at your disposal. It's abounding towards you. God is able to make all grace abound towards you, that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. Glory to God. Now you remember, of course, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, how the apostle Paul said that he had a, a tremendous experience. He was caught up into the third heaven. He says, whether he was in the body or out of the body, he couldn't tell. But he was caught up into the third heaven and he saw things there that was even unlawful for him to tell another human being. What did he see when he was caught up into the very third heaven where God was? And then he says, but so that I wouldn't have a big head, so that it wouldn't be puffed up because of what I saw and what I heard, he says, there was uh, a thorn in the flesh was given unto me, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. And you know, whatever it was, and some people say it was some kind of an illness, he had glaucoma, or he had, oh, he had all, well, people said he had all kinds of illnesses, and yet the Bible doesn't say that at all. But whatever it was, perhaps it was a demonic spirit that, that followed him around everywhere he went and stirred up people against him. You know, everywhere he went, somebody did something against this man. In fact, he says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. The Lord reward him according to his works. But whatever this thorn in the flesh was, and we don't know for sure, what we do know is that Paul was sick and tired of it. In fact, he prayed three times, Lord, please take this away from me. I'm tired of this. I don't want this anymore. Every day I have to face this thorn in the flesh. And you know, for Paul, and Paul was a hard man. I mean, Paul was a tough cookie. I mean, Paul went through some things in life. But whatever this was, this thorn in his flesh, he really wanted God to remove it. 
And God says, no, no. But he says, my grace will be sufficient for you. Paul, my grace will be more than enough for you to handle this. And even though it's tough and it's hard and it's difficult, and even though you'd rather not have it, but I'm not going to remove it, but I'm just going to give you a greater supply of my grace that you'll be able to handle this, that you'll be able to overcome this, that you'll be able to go through life even with this, but you'll still win in life. And so the grace of God is such a powerful, powerful thing. It is really, really wonderful. Now, one of the things Paul went through was imprisonment. And not only one time. And whenever he was in prison, uh, in fact, the first time, it was really house arrest he was under. People was able to come and go and visit him. But he used that kind of a lockdown time, if I could put it that way. He used that uh, for good. And he began to write letters uh, to churches. Uh, these became known as the prison epistles. You know, there's Ephesians and Colossians and, 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 uh, and Philemon and Philippians. There was four of them. And he wrote these to these churches and encouraged them and strengthened them. So he didn't waste his time under house arrest. He used it for the glory of God. And then he was released. And then he would travel again. And then he wrote, uh, probably some years later, he wrote a, a wonderful letter to his young protege, Timothy. Uh, Timothy was a young preacher uh, that traveled with Paul a lot. And in fact, Paul really loved this young man. Probably nobody was closer to Paul on earth than Timothy. That's how close they were. There was something spiritual. There was a connection between these two. And Paul called him as my own son in the faith. He really, he really loved him. And, uh, and so Paul writes to him because Paul had, had put him in a position of great uh, responsibility because he was now a pastor of the church at Ephesus. Now, you have to understand that Ephesus was a great, massive city. In fact, they believed at that time that was perhaps up to a million people lived in Ephesus. It was a proconsul city for Rome in that whole region. And uh, it was a city of trade, a city of commerce. It was a port city. But also, it was a licentious city. It was completely taken over with idolatry and paganism. Uh, and the great attraction to Ephesus where people would come over the then known world to see this was the temple of Diana or Artemis, Diana of the Ephesians. And this licentious God had a great temple and this temple was massive. Anybody's ever been to the Parthenon in Greece, this was about five times bigger than that. So it was massive and it was such an attraction and it had hundreds of priestesses who were in fact temple prostitutes. So it was an awful city for, for sin, licentiousness, uh, wicked, evil, pagan. And in the midst of all of that, Paul plants a great church. He really does. He plants a great church. And it's a growing church. It's expanding. Now, whenever we say church, we're not thinking of, of one building where people come to on Sunday. That wasn't the way it was in first century Christianity. And they didn't have any buildings other than their homes. And they would meet in their homes all over the city. And, uh, you know, there's one occasion where Paul, where the, the Jews refused him to speak in the synagogue. So he went to the hall of Tyrannus. And I've actually stood in that hall where Paul preached. And he went in there and preached every single day he preached. And so he built up a great church. And then he had to leave there, but he put 
Timothy in charge. Now, Timothy wasn't as robust as the Apostle Paul physically. In fact, he had trouble with his stomach. Paul one time said to him, he says, look, drink no longer water, but use a little wine for your stomach's sake. And some people could do with using a lot less wine for their stomach's sake. But in his case, it was a little for his stomach's sake. And also because he was young. Now, when we say he was young, he was probably about 30-ish. But compared to Paul, he was young. And for that position he was in, that was young. And he said, don't let anybody despise your youth. In other words, live in such a way that people can't say, oh, he's just a young man, you know, you know, and put you down because of your youth. Live in such a way that they will respect you and honor you in spite of your youthful age. And so that's kind of what Timothy was like. And Paul is writing to him here and he's encouraging him. And, and Ephesus, as I said, was that massive big city and the church was thriving and growing. So this young man had a, had a lot on his plate. And then he also wrote to Titus. And Titus probably was a little bit older than Timothy. And, and Titus seemed to be a strong personality. In fact, whenever they did the collection, the Corinthians did the collection for the saints, for relief of the saints of Jerusalem, Paul sent Titus to make sure it was done and for him to deal with the issues because the Corinthian church had a lot of problems. So he sent Titus because Titus was a strong man. Now, Titus wasn't in Ephesus. He wasn't a big city. He was in the island of Crete. <laughs> and the island of Crete at that time, I mean, Paul said one of their own prophets said about the Cretans, he said, they're always liars. He said, they're evil beasts. They're lazy gluttons. I mean, that wasn't very complimentary, was it? And, you know, and, and so that pagan area, that's where Titus then had to, there was fellowships there, there was church plants there, and he had to deal with that. And so these two young men, Titus and, Tim, and Timothy, both of them had a lot on their plate and they needed the grace of God to be able to do that. And, and Paul, writing to them, actually tells them that. He talks about the grace of God. In fact, Paul's signature uh, in all the letters he wrote, whenever he began them, he, he said, grace and peace be unto you. That was his signature. Grace and peace be unto you. And he used the word charis for grace there. You know, because the Greeks had carry on, which just meant greetings, but he changed that to charis, which meant, you know, for God's blessing, you know, for, for God's favor to be upon you, for the grace of God to be upon you. And that appealed to the, to the Greek-speaking people in the church. But then he used the word shalom, peace, uh, which means blessing and prosperity uh, and, and peace to you. And he used that for the Hebrew-speaking people. But whenever he wrote to Timothy and he wrote to Titus, he, he gave a triple greeting. He says, grace, mercy, and peace be to you, Timothy. Grace, mercy, and peace be to you, Titus. Because these two young men, they needed all the grace and mercy they could get to do the job that they were called to do. And so Paul encourages them and writes to them and, and lets them know that God's grace is available to them. And just the way that God's grace was available to him, he's saying God's grace is available to you. Whatever you have to do in ministry, because these two young men were in ministry, whatever you have to do, tough it is, God's grace is going to be available to you. In fact, in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul writes, And I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. 
Although I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. Note this. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtained mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long sufferings as a pattern for those who are going to believe in him for everlasting life. And so Paul said, look, Timothy, look, Titus, he said, look at me. I was a blasphemer. I was an insolent man. I was a terrible man against the church. But God in his grace saved me. God in his abundant mercy came to me and saved me. Now God's abundant grace will save you, will help you, will give you strength to go through what you are going through each day. Now Paul writes twice to Timothy and once to Titus. And when he writes to Timothy the first time, the church at Ephesus probably had been going about eight years by this time. And as I said, it was a growing, expanding church. But it had major problems, big problems, because there were those who came into the church who were false teachers, and they were trying to destroy the church. In fact, when Paul left Ephesus, some of the elders met him at the seashore and he had a time of prayer with them. And here's what he said to them. Acts 20, you can read it. He says, whenever I go, he says, grievous wolves shall enter in, sparing not the flock. And then he says, but even some men inside the church will rise up and they will draw people away to themselves and make merchandise of them. And so, and that's what happened. And that's the type of thing that young Timothy had to deal with. So you can see why he needed the grace of God, can't you? But then between 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy, there's a period maybe about five years. And Paul had been released. And in that time, uh, there was something that happened that was going to be a major, major problem to the church all over the Roman Empire. Nero, that brutal Nero, uh, he... he uh, they say that he set fire to Rome because he wanted to rebuild it again in his own style because he was a great builder. And it caused such a furore that he blamed the Christians. He wanted to take the flak off himself and he blamed the Christians. And that started a whole series of persecutions against Christians, not just in Rome, but all over the empire. In fact, he made it illegal to be a Christian at that time. And so all of this was, was happening all over the empire and in Ephesus too. So now Timothy's having to deal with false teachers coming in. He's having to deal with persecution, people leaving, all kinds of upsets and strains and stresses. No wonder he needed the grace of God to help him. And so Paul says, grace and mercy and peace be unto you. So whatever you and I are facing, even in ministry, let me tell you sometimes, for those who are in ministry, sometimes it can be really, really tough. It really can be. And sometimes you need the grace of God because stuff happens in life. And it happens to everybody, whether you're in ministry or not. But if you're in ministry and you're having to deal with stuff in life as well as stuff in the church and stuff in ministry, you need the grace of God to be able to handle it. You really do. And thank God His grace is available. Thank God His grace gets you through. 
You know, I've been doing this now 41 years. And let me tell you, there was times I really, really leaned on and needed the grace of God because there was times you could have easily just walked away and said, I've had enough. But you didn't because of the grace of God. The grace of God came in and just strengthened and helped and got you through that and you went on to the glory of God. John writing in John chapter 1 verse 16 said, And of his fullness we all have received and grace for grace. The New Living Translation puts it this way. From his abundance, we all have received one gracious blessing after another. And you know, if you look back over your Christian life, that's what you'll find. It's been one gracious blessing after another. And sometimes we forget to count those gracious blessings. The Weymouth Translation says, For he it is from whom... From, sorry, for he it is from whose fullness we all have received and grace upon grace. Glory to God. I want to read just a couple of verses from Zechariah chapter 4. You don't need to turn to this. Now, coincidentally, we had read here last week, sermon last week, and I, I stopped and didn't go on any further but I want to go a little bit further this morning because this is encouraging for us. And what was happening was this was after the Babylonian captivity and the temple had been in ruins and there was those who were sent to rebuild the temple. Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel was a, a kind of a civic leader and uh, Joshua the high priest, not Joshua you know, who Moses appointed as next leader, but Joshua the high priest, different Joshua. And the two prophets, Zechariah and Haggai, they were the contemporary prophets at that time. And so they began the work, but they were hindered and hampered. Uh, and, and, you know, there was all kinds of problems even doing this. And, and there was much opposition to the work as well. Uh, and they, they were doing the best they could, but then apathy set in and people stopped building and they started building their houses instead. And this was going on for years and the work was not being done. So God comes through the prophet Zechariah to speak to Zerubbabel to get the job done. And in verse 1 of chapter 4 of Zechariah, Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me, as a man who is awakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of gold, solid gold with a bowl on top of it. And on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps, Two olive trees are by it, one at the right hand of the bowl, the other at the left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstones with shouts of grace, grace to it. That's unusual, isn't it? That's unusual. Now he's speaking here, and he's telling him to get on with the job. And now the job is coming to the place where it's nearly done. It's almost complete. And... Who are you, O great mountain, that you should oppose Zerubbabel? That's in essence what it's saying. How dare you oppose the work of the Lord? You shall become a plain. 
So all the opposition they had, all of that was going to go away. It was going to melt away. It would become like a plane and the job would be done. And when the job is done, then he says, go and shout grace, 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 grace to it. Why would you do that? To acknowledge it was the grace of God that got the job done. It wasn't their ability. It wasn't any of that. It was the grace of God got the job done. In spite of all the opposition and all the trouble they were going through and all the hindrances and, and upsets and, and holdbacks, all of that there, at the end of it, it was the grace of God got this job done. And it will be the same in our lives too. Whatever you're doing for God, let me tell you, whatever you go to do for God, you're going to have some problems. You're going to have some opposition. <laughs> There's some things that's going to go wrong. It's just, that's the way it is. But what you've got to do is remember the grace of God. And sometimes you have to speak grace to that. Grace to that. Realize that God has given us an abundance of grace available to us. Let's draw upon the grace of God. Let's do that. Earlier on, I quoted uh, from C.H. Spurgeon. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was an exceptional preacher. Exceptional. That's why he was called the Prince of Preachers. And uh, whenever he was only 19, when he was pastoring his first church at 19, he got a call from a very prestigious London church to come and, and preach on a Sunday, a particular Sunday. Now, this particular church was one of the biggest in London. That was a big Baptist church, one of the biggest in London, and had a great reputation. Although Spurgeon had never been there before, but he knew of the reputation. And so when eventually he went, he went with a little trepidation because he had a little church. This was a big church. But when he got there on that Sunday, he was shocked. There were so few people there. And what he then began to find out was that the Baptist churches at that time were going through lots of schisms and splits and arguments and debates. The numbers were falling dramatically. And that big church had just a handful of people left, just a handful. And so in this big cavernous building, he's preaching to a handful of people on Sunday morning, but he preaches with his whole heart. And then he was to preach on Sunday night. But on Sunday night, the word got out of this young preacher. You've got to hear this young preacher. And so a lot more people came. And they had a great Sunday in that church. And so he went back home again. But those elders of that church, they had no pastor. And so they, they contacted uh, Spurgeon and said, would you come and be our pastor? And so he thought about it and he prayed much about it. And in the end, he decided, yes, I believe this is God's will for me. And he went there. Now remember, he's only 19. Within three years of going there, that church could not hold the people that were coming they were coming in massive crowds. In fact, they had to vacate that building and get a bigger building. And within eight years only, when he's only 27, he built the biggest church in London. It seated 3,700 people with 2,000 standing on top of that. And from that day to the day he died, he preached to almost 6,000 people every Sunday, Sunday morning, Sunday night in that great metropolitan tabernacle. And so he had a, a tremendous, he was a tremendously gifted man. They said that the average person has like 13,000 words in the vocabulary. He had 16,000. You know, he had memorized hundreds of hymns. Any sermon he preached, at any moment in any sermon, he could just quote a verse of a hymn just like that because he'd memorized so many. 
He was a prolific writer. He wrote volumes of books and pamphlets and leaflets and all the rest of it. Now, having told you that, you would think, well, wow, that's wonderful. I mean, that man is just amazing. God has used him incredibly. And that's all true. But unless you read his story, unless you read his books, unless you read like his lectures to young students, for instance, you wouldn't probably know that he suffered a lot even from depression. There was times he felt so low he wanted to quit. He wanted to give up the ministry. He said he would go home Sunday after Sunday after Sunday thinking how terrible a preacher he was. Why does people come to hear me? I'm so bad. That's how he was thinking. And so there was times he felt so down and so low that he just felt, I, I can't do this. And one of those times, he called them, by the way, the preacher's fainting fits. That was his quaint way of saying it. When he felt really, really bad, the preacher's fainting fits. And one of those times he was going home, and it says here, when Spurgeon was riding home one evening after a heavy day's work and feeling very wearied and depressed, the verse, my grace is sufficient for you, came to him. And he immediately compared himself to a little fish in the Thames, apprehensive, less drinking so many pints of water in the river each day, it might drink the Thames dry. And hearing Father Thames say to it, drink away, little fish, my stream is sufficient for you. He then thought of a little mouse in the granaries of Joseph in Egypt, afraid lest it might, by daily consumption of the corn it needed, exhaust the supplies and starve to death. When Joseph came along, sensing its fear, said, Cheer up, little mouse, my granaries are sufficient for you. Or again, he thought of himself as a man climbing some high mountain to reach its lofty summit and dreading lest he might exhaust all the oxygen in the atmosphere when the Creator himself said, Breathe away, O man, and fill thy lungs ever. My atmosphere is sufficient for thee. Then he told his congregation, For the first time in my life, I experienced what Abraham felt when he fell upon his face and laughed. It was such a joyful experience. Now here was a mighty man of God. Here was the greatest preacher that England ever produced. Here's a man who had a mega church when that term wasn't even invented. Here was a man who led thousands of souls to Christ. And yet, in spite of all of that, he needed the grace of God. And there was times in his life he could not have existed or survived without the grace of God. Why am I telling you this? I'm saying to you today, you need the grace of God. And there's a grace for you. There's a grace for you today. Whatever you're facing, there's a grace for it. Whatever struggle you're in, there's a grace for it. Whatever stumbling block you're dealing with, there's a grace for it. Whatever sin is locked into your life, there's a grace for it to break that. Whatever you're feeling, whatever you're going through, whatever trouble has come your way, there's a grace for that. There is a super abundance of God's grace for every believer today. So be encouraged, believer. Be encouraged, Christian, today. There's a grace for you today. Whatever you're facing right now, whatever you have to face this week, there's a grace for it. And if you say, Lord, give me your grace. Lord, I reach out and receive your grace today. God has got an abundant supply to meet every need that you're going to face. So grace to you today, I say. Grace to you, whatever situation you're in, let the grace of God uh, come to you today and strengthen and encourage and bless you in Jesus' name. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus. And we thank you that it was through his grace and by faith that we have been saved today. It was through the gospel of your Son that we have come to Christ and we know salvation. And so, Lord, we thank you for this gift of life that you have imparted. But we bless you, Lord, for your grace that helps us to live this Christian life, that gives us the strength that we need, the power that we need, the hope and encouragement that we need every day. So we thank you, Lord, for your grace that is available right now. And I pray for those who are watching, for those who are listening today, in their homes or in their car, wherever they may be, they need your grace. And I say grace to them today. And I pray that your grace will lift them up and strengthen them and encourage them in the mighty name of Jesus. We commit them to you today. Commit them to your grace and commit them to your care and love. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.